Bible study this evening. And I'm trying to get used to being up here on Sunday nights. Um, you like it better up here because you can see me better? Yeah. That's what some, pe- some people have been telling me. I like to get as close to you as I can. So I'm trying to adjust myself to being up here. I feel all alone up here. I, I got Colosseum. I got the Colosseum behind me here. Um, but I feel lonely up here. Uh, well, you all have sympathy on me? Oh, before I get to the message. You know, one of the things we do on Sunday night is uh, we stream Sunday nights. So everybody just heard everything I just said, if they're watching online. Um, and we use one camera to do that. And that's because we don't have people that are willing to be committed to and are willing to work on Sunday evenings to help us demand the cameras. We have four different cameras. You have to have a director. Uh, you have to have various other personnel. And it's not something that if you're not technologically, uh, a little, have a little bit of a technological skill, you don't, you don't want to get involved in doing that. Like me, I can't turn on the television some days. So it's probably not a very good place for me to work. Um, but you may have those skills, and you might be looking for a place where, where you could serve and uh, we could put together a team for Sunday evenings. We used to have that in the past, uh, before 2020, and we'd love to be able to bring that back. And uh, you can just call uh, at the office, or you can call and speak to me, and I can connect you with the right people, and we can get you the training. have to be a member of the church, uh, be a part of the congregation, uh, but we would love to be able to enhance our abilities on Sunday evenings. That goes as well for our children's program. Some people have said to me, Pastor, why haven't we restarted all of our children's ministry on Sunday night? Because it takes people to do that. And we, we have people say, we'll come if you'll provide something for our children, but we don't want our children to have to sit in the service and listen to you. The whole, well, they don't say it that way, but that's, that's the point they're making. Um, but that takes people that are willing to do that. So I'll, I'll give uh, some time on Sunday evenings to work downstairs with the kids. And uh, we, we never put anybody down there that doesn't... You have to go through a qualification process to work with children. Uh, that's a little more complex than working back here in the media room. Um, but we would love to be able to restart all of our children's program on Sunday evening. Again, that takes personnel. Uh, you could be like one lady who said, my kids are grown and gone. I'm done with the children. I don't want to go back down there. Well, I realize that. Maybe a lot of you feel that way. But maybe there's some that say, you know, I'd like to be a part of doing something to help the children to be able to come back. Uh, parents to be able to, young parents especially, to be able to come back. And their children have a ministry downstairs. So those are two things that you can pray with me about. Uh, find your place in your Bible with me at Luke chapter 3. And we're going to have a Bible study this evening. We're uh, talking here about this I believe We've been doing that for a number of Sunday nights now. Uh, we've talked about inspiration. I talked with you for a couple of weeks about the importance of inspiration, that it, the Scripture is God-breathed, that it is uh, inerrant, infallible. Uh, it is the final authority of our faith. If you want to know how we're supposed to live our lives, we, we look to the Scripture. We look to the Word of God. And we talked about inspiration and the importance of inspiration. We've talked about the Trinity. Uh, Jeremy spoke about the Trinity. Uh, we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the, the Holy Spirit. That they all three exist at the same time, but they are one, the same God. And that's baffling to our minds, but we're not modalist. We don't believe that God the Father becomes God the Son, that becomes God the Holy Spirit. Uh, if that were true, to whom did Jesus make the presentation of his sacrifice? Uh, to whom does the Spirit of God that is within us pray when he says he makes utterances that you know, we can't even understand, but he makes them on our behalf to God? To whom does he pray? I mean, we believe that God is uh, a triune being. Uh, Brother Tim talked to, about the Holy Spirit, and he talked about just one aspect of the Holy Spirit, about his coming on the, on the day of Pentecost. And the church being birthed into existence. But we could have talked about how the Holy Spirit convicts of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. That uh, the Holy Spirit is the one who draws us. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates us. The Holy Spirit is the one who saves us and indwells us. 
All of those things are a part of what the Holy Spirit does, but we wanted to talk about the Holy Spirit and acknowledge His working. And then the last time we spoke on Sunday evening, I spoke about being saved by faith alone. It's not faith plus anything else. It's by faith and by faith alone. And I took you through some common things that people sometimes are basing their salvation on, but sometimes they don't fully understand. And it's a little confusing, some of the things. I just want to make it clear. If you want to be saved, you've got to trust in Christ to be your Savior. Now, tonight, I have the task, the sort of daunting task, to talk to you about the subject of, of creation and that we believe that God created in six literal days everything that there is. So let me begin by saying that I'm not a scientist. Um, I didn't even like science <laughs> when I took it. Um, I prefer the languages. I preferred, uh, preferred um, literature uh, over science and over math. And if you look at my scores, you'd know why. Um, so I don't profess here to be a scientist. I am a pastoral theologian. And I mean by that that uh, I, I know what the Word of God says. And if you believe that the world evolved into what it is today, then you've got problems with the Bible. And you're going to have to find a way to reconcile those problems. The answer to that is for us who are creationists is that we believe that God in six literal days, ex nihilo, out of nothing, God created everything that there is. Six literal 24-hour days, God created everything that there is. And on the seventh day, he rested. That's written into our doctrinal statement. Um, I was a part of forming this many years ago. Our church didn't have one when I came. And we put together a doctrinal statement. It says, we believe that the triune God, by a free act in the beginning and for his own glory, without the use of existing materials or secondary causes, brought into being immediately and instantaneously in six literal days by the word of his mouth, the whole visible and invisible universe. Now, just listening to me talk about that, just letting me read those words from the doctoral statement, you automatically know that we're in conflict with the world around us, aren't we? Uh, the world around us almost unanimously believes that we evolved over millions and billions of years into who we are and what we are today. And so if you contradict that understanding, if you say something other than that understanding, you are... Uh, pushed out as being somebody who is, uh, you know, wild-eyed. They, they haven't really, they're not intellectual enough to understand. Uh, they, they don't fully grasp science and how science works. And, and I get that. Believing in creation in six literal 24-hour days uh, is something that generally by the society in which we live, your kids, by the way, being taught evolution, at least most of the cases, being taught evolution, uh, your kids are led to believe that creation is a myth. It could never have happened that way. It had to take millions and billions of years for it to occur. And that's what they hear all the time. I, I was thinking about the lesson tonight. By the way, tonight's going to be a, it's a Bible study. It's not a sermon. We're going to look at a lot of different passages of Scripture. But um, I, I was thinking back across my life growing up, uh, I went to Columbia High School, about 3,000 students at Columbia High School. Um, I remember my biology class. I remember my biology teacher. And my, my, my teacher taught us the theory of evolution. I remember him doing that. But the, the last thing he said before the class would come to an end, at the end of that section of that study about where life came from, from the evolutionary point of view, was he said, there is another way to explain this, and you should talk to your minister or your rabbi or to a pastor and let them explain to you another perspective. You could not even do that today. You could not offer another perspective. Uh, they would not allow any competing opinion uh, about where things come from and, and the origin of things and how they all got here. You, you would not be allowed that. Um, because they are determined they're going to make sure everybody continues to believe in the evolutionary theory. 
Uh, you realize that before Darwin, and there's one other man, and I can't think of his name, they, they were both in that same period of time. They, they worked together. Um, that before Darwin, the explanation of how things came to be was what God told us. But with Darwin uh, came this theory about how we evolved over millions and billions of years. And through a process of time and chance, we came to be who we are. And we all come from one particular thing in the past, and we have evolved into what we are uh, today. And that's um, what, what we're taught. When I was a, a kid, we lived about 15 miles from Stone Mountain. Any of you ever been to Stone Mountain? Okay, got a handful of people that have been to Stone Mountain. Stone Mountain is this huge rock in Stone Mountain Park. <clears throat> you can climb to the top on one side. It'll take you a couple hours if you climb, maybe two and a half hours, depending on how healthy you are, to get to the top. You can ride the cable car uh, from the bottom to the top on the other side of the mountain. You can ride the cable car up. That takes you a matter of a few minutes. And when you get to the top, you got this incredible view across Atlanta, this incredible view across that area, the Stone Mountain area, and it's absolutely beautiful to see. They have a, a train that goes around and winds around. They have a lake. You can get on a boat and ride uh, a glass-bottom boat and ride out into the lake. They've got um, hotels that you can stay in. They used to have a lot of Civil War um, displays, a lot of Civil War um, reenactments, not by literal actors, but you could go into a, to a museum and you could watch them talk about the different battles that took place. I'm not sure who's texting me, but whoever's texting me, it's uh, my watch is talking to me. That's scary too. That never happened down there. It's got to be those coliseums behind me. Um, so it, it, they had all that stuff. All that's gone. All that part of it's gone. Uh, they have on the side of the mountain three of the uh, Confederate generals uh, that are up there. You go to that side of the mountain, they have laser light shows at night. Uh, which is a fascinating, mix it with music. It's a fascinating thing to watch. But they, they have there at the base of the mountain, they have a museum that you can go through. And it talks about the mountain. And you go through and you, you read the different things or you listen to them uh, talk to you about the different things. And if you, if you listen carefully, everything's about millions and billions of years. It took millions and billions of years to get this gigantic rock that we're looking at in front of you out these big picture windows this gigantic rock, it took millions and billions of years uh, for this to come to be like it is. And there is no other explanation. If you have watched your children's programming on television, you will hear it again and again and again. You realize, and I'm not saying you shouldn't say these things, I'm just saying you realize when you say father time and mother nature that you're using evolutionary terms. Father time and mother nature. Now, I say father time and I say Mary, I say Mary, Mary nature. <laughs> I say mother nature, uh, which is to me Mary. But uh, I, I say mother, you know, uh, what is the word? Uh, father time and, and, and what is it? Mother nature. Yeah, yeah. Yes, two M's. I'm confused. Uh, mother nature. Those are evolutionary terms. And I realize that we don't talk about that. We don't want to make a big deal out of that. But you hear it all the time. Your kids see it all the time. They're constantly being educated. And, and our kids believe that the Bible is filled with a lot of good stories, but it's not historical. It's not historical. And really, it's antithetical to science. Uh, science is a great thing. Science is absolutely necessary. Science is an incredible thing when, if you've got a mind for it. It's an incredible thing to understand. Uh, but science usually works by being able to observe something and repeat it. Observe it and repeat it. Observe it and repeat it. And the one thing you cannot do is go back to the beginning and observe and repeat how everything began. So you have a theory. You don't have something that you can observe and repeat. Uh, and the result is that that becomes what we teach our children. May, may I just say on a moral point of view, uh, you teach your children, you come from the animal kingdom, it's no wonder they act like sometimes the animal kingdom. We don't teach them that, they have, that they're made in the image of God, that they were created by the almighty God, that they evolved from a lower form of creature into who they are today. 
And if that were true, I'm praying that some of the people I know are still evolving <laughs> because they got a long way to go. You know what I'm talking about? I'm, I'm being funny there, but you, you understand? Um, and so our kids hear it. We hear it all the time. It's built into everything. If you go to a national park and you, you, you're given a tour through a national park, you will, be taught, you will be told about the millions and billions of years that that is how everything came into existence. Well, uh, Christians had a problem with that. And they felt like what they needed to do was to accommodate this theory of how everything came into existence so that the Bible wasn't in conflict with what science is supposedly teaching us about the origin of things. And so they began developing ways to interpret the book of Genesis differently. Rather than take it literally, rather than take it historically, they began looking for ways to interpret the book of Genesis, especially the first three chapters, uh, the, in, a, in a, a less historical manner, in, in a less, uh, less in a uh, uh, literary manner, in more uh, in a framework kind of a perspective. For instance, there are those who believe in what's called the gap theory. That between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, there's a gap of millions and billions of years. Um, but again, if you're looking at the Hebrew text, what you realize is, is that there is no gap. It's man-made. It's made up that there is a gap. There is no place for millions and billions of years between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Uh, there's the, the theory of the, the day-age theory of evolution. Uh, the day-age theory says that the days weren't 24, literal 24-hour days, that the days were long periods of time. Uh, and those long periods of time are just being summarized into those six days so that they, you can put into those long periods of time the millions and billions of years. Uh, there's a framework theory that has to do with the literary text uh, of the Bible. We don't read the Bible as history. We read it uh, in a different fashion. And they, they're trying to accommodate uh, evolutionary theory so that they don't have to have the creation story in conflict with evolution and evolution in conflict with creation. And they develop these different theories. And there's, there's theistic evolution. As I mentioned a moment ago, the framework theory there's different theories because they want to be able to say, yes, science tells us it's millions and billions. God says uh, it's, uh, you know, maybe 6,000 to 10,000 years old. But we'll reconcile those two by reinterpreting Genesis 1-1 and, and uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We'll reinterpret them. And uh, we'll fit those years in. In my estimation, I think that's a terrible mistake. Um, the only one who was there when everything began to be able to observe it and the only one who could repeat it was there and that's Jehovah God and I see no reason as I read the Bible to reinterpret Genesis by the way when you start doing that are y'all still with me see I can't see your eyes from up here um when you start reinterpreting the Bible like that, you open up a can of worms that you'll never get closed again. You understand that that's the reason uh, for a lot of the misunderstandings today uh, about uh, the roles of men and women in society, the roles of men and women in the family, the roles of men and women uh, in the church. That's the reason for the misunderstanding. Well, you know, I realize that that's what it literally says, but we're, we're going to reinterpret it so that it fits the context where we are. Well, just because the context of where we are is a more evolutionary context doesn't mean we should reinterpret the Scripture because when you start reinterpreting the Scripture to accommodate secular theories, the end result is, is that you destroy the Word of God. And I'm going to show you that here in just a moment. Um, I've been reading the Bible a long time, and you probably have been reading the Bible a long time, but next time you're reading the Bible through from Genesis to Revelation, the next time you read it through, every time you come across something that speaks about creation, 
Mark it in your Bible. Just mark it. You might not say God created, but he's talking about creation. Just mark it in your Bible. He's talking about Adam and Eve. Just mark it in your Bible. And you will be literally stunned and amazed at how many times in your Bible you will find places that you have highlighted that talk about where God created, where there was a beginning, and that beginning was what God said it is. You will be stunned by the number of scriptures that have to say that. As a matter of fact, even in the law of Moses, Moses takes the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest, and he requires that, well, what do we do on the Sabbath day? And under the law, if we were under the law, what do we do on the Sabbath day? You have to rest. He uses the creation account to establish the seven days that we're familiar with, with a day of rest. It, it's all over your Bible. One of the areas where you see it has to do with Adam and Eve. And that's where I want to take you for a few minutes. You're going to see in the, the scriptures that we're going to look at briefly that the Bible refers to Adam and Eve, and I'm going to only take you to the New Testament. I'm not going to look at the Old Testament. The Bible takes Adam and Eve as literal, actual characters, historical, and that God created them from the dust of the earth, created Adam from the dust of the earth, and woman from his side, and that all of that is the divine work of God. So let me stop here and say one more thing. Are you saying, Pastor, that if I believe in the day-age theory, or I believe in the gap theory, or I believe in the framework theory, or I believe in the theistic evolutionary theory, which is God guided it all, so God was overseeing it all and in charge of it all to bring it all into, into reality. Uh, if, I, if I believe one of those theories, are you saying that I'm not saved? Not at all. Not at all. But what I am saying is you open up a can of worms for what the Bible has to say. And now you got to not only reinterpret Genesis 1 to 3, now you, every time you find something about creation in your Bible, when you find something, as we're going to see in a moment here, about Adam and Eve in your Bible, you got to find another explanation for it. And by the way, there are noted and notable scientists who believe in creation. They are not as many as there are evolutionary scientists, but when has it ever been true that those who believe the truth are in the majority? They've always been in the minority. And there are, there are scientists who believe uh, in the creation days. It works a little bit like this. Maybe we'll get to Adam and Eve or not. It works a little bit like this. Let's just put ourselves for a moment in a courtroom, okay? You got a prosecutor you got a defender. They both have the same evidence, but they both tell a different story when they come to court, right? Y'all with me? Y'all with me? They both tell a different story. The prosecutor, when he gets through, that guy's guilty. He's guilty. As we'd say it in Georgia, he's guilty of sin. Then the defender steps up, and the defender, taking the same exact evidence, argues his case, and you say, mm, that guy's not guilty. And then it gets sent to a jury, and the jury has to figure it out. You know, is he guilty or is he not, is he not guilty? you got two different parties looking at the exact same evidence and coming to different conclusions. The evidence that we have is the same for everybody. The difference is between the way creation interprets the evidence and the way evolution interprets the evidence. And all of those interpretations are based on a presupposition. It's, it's the logic process. They're based on a presupposition. You come to the evidence. Everybody says, you know, uh, um, you know I come with no bias. Uh, what do they call it? Uh, when you're doing a, a Ph.D. paper uh, and you're doing the research, it's called, uh, my mind won't bring it up. What is it? I can't hear any of you. No, 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 not, not what it is. Um, there's a word for it. Uh, you're letting the evidence take you where it does. Everybody says we're going to follow the evidence, 
But everybody that comes to the evidence comes with a presupposition before they ever arrive. It's impossible not to. Christians come to the evidence with a presupposition. What is that presupposition? That God is the creator. His word is the inspired, inerrant word of God. We believe what it says, and God said he created in six literal days everything there is. So when we look at the evidence, we see the evidence for creation. The evolutionist looks at the same evidence, but they come with a presupposition. And that presupposition is that God didn't create everything, that everything had to come about over millions and billions of years. There's no way this could have happened in a matter of a few days. This had to have happened over millions and billions of years. And they look at the same evidence, and they come out with the explanation of evolution. How can that be? Well, it's based on your presupposition. I acknowledge it. I'm, I'm telling you right up front. I look at the evidence as I understand scientific evidence. I look at the evidence, and I usually look through the eyes of a creation scientist. But when I look at the evidence, I see the evidence for a creator God and a literal creation. I don't see the millions and billions of years. Um, Mary will probably remember this, but when uh, we were in school, uh, late elementary and into to, uh well, what they call middle school and high school today, we would go to the Fernbank Science Center. Any day out of class was a good day. You know what I mean? They load you up on a bus and they take you outside of, outside of the Beltway in Atlanta to the Fernbank Science Center. And they take you around, they show you all these different science things, and they take you into this room. You've got seats that are like theater seats, but they're laid back and they put up on this domed ceiling above you all of the stars and all of the heavenlies that are above you. And then they lecture you for the next 40 minutes, 35, 40 minutes about the different stars. You see the Big Dipper and you see all these other things that are in the Mars and the different planets. You see it all. And they all come with the same presupposition. That couldn't have happened in six literal days, it had to happen over millions and billions of years. So we're not talking about the evidence itself. The evidence is the same for everybody. It's how you interpret the evidence. And how you interpret the evidence is always colored by the presupposition that you come to that evidence uh, bearing. Um, and that's an important thing. So you look through your Bible, you find again and again passages about creation. You come to the New Testament, you're going to see passages about Adam and Eve. They weren't some figurative characters that didn't really live. They weren't two people that uh, evolved out of some lower life form. They weren't uh, the first of God's human creation. And prior to that, there were millions and billions of humanoid kind of creatures that existed previously. You find that the scripture says that Adam and Eve were created just like Genesis 1, 2, and 3 says, that Adam and Eve were the beginning of everything as it relates to humanity, and that when you look at Adam and Eve, they are the New Testament evidence for God's creation being exactly what he says it is. So we begin in, in Luke chapter 3. Don't you love Luke chapter 3? I'd like for one of you to stand and read the entire genealogy of Jesus, beginning in verse 23. Anybody like to do that? Pronounce all of those names? Verse 20, I'm just kidding, Doc. Now, Jesus, you could do it, but I'm just kidding. I, I, was, I didn't think anybody would take me up. Verse 23, now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, and it goes on. You get all the way down to verse 38. Well, let's go with verse 37. The son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So we begin with the genealogy of Jesus. 
All of the characters that go between verses 23 and 38 are all acknowledged by those who study the Scriptures to have been actual, literal, historical people who existed. And when Luke begins tracing the genealogy of Jesus, he traces it all the way back to Adam. But it doesn't say that there was something before Adam. It doesn't say there were people before Adam. There was some kind of humanoid creature before Adam. It goes all the way back to Adam, and he says he was the son of God. In other words, he was the distinct creation of God who bore the image of God. He's the first in the genealogical sequence that unfolds, that takes us all the way to this person, this person, Jesus Christ. And Luke recognizes no one in the genealogy before Adam. Now, you know where we learn about Adam? We learn about Adam in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. If we're going to reinterpret Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we're going to have to deal with who Adam really is and you're going to have to deal with what Luke, the doctor, says is the genealogy of Jesus. And wouldn't it be strange if every other character in the line of the genealogy of Jesus was a historical character until you get to Adam? And somehow Adam is something different than everybody else. Look for a moment at Acts chapter 17. I said we're going to do a Bible study, so just stay with me. Acts chapter 17, verse 26 Acts chapter 17, verse 26. Paul is preaching at the Areopagus. He's preaching to the Gentiles. Hey, if you're going to talk about Adam not being a real person, creation not being a real thing, this would have been a good place to do it because he's talking to people who don't believe in the one true God. He's talking, about, talking to people who believe in many gods. But in verse 26, you see what he says? And he has made from one blood. Actually, uh, many of your texts probably say he has made from one. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Let me ask you a question. Who's in charge of everything? He's the sovereign over everything. He's the one who determines the boundaries. He's determined where nations exist, uh, where nations live. Uh, he's the one from whom it says this one who created. He is the one who made it such that from one blood. Now, who's he referring to when he talks about one blood? Talking about Adam. Talking about Adam. From Adam, every person comes. There wasn't anything before Adam. Uh, there, there wasn't something else that existed prior to Adam. Uh, Adam was a historical character created out of the dust of the earth. And from Adam, one blood, comes every other human being. Uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Just skip over a few more pages in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You know, when you get into chapter 11, you're into the uh, text of Scripture dealing with... Um, uh, dealing with the Lord's Supper at the end of the chapter. Uh, but notice, if you will, verses 8 and 9. Listen to how he talks about it. These, these are, when I say mark these passages that, that are creation passages, this is what I'm talking about. You might not mention Adam's name, but you know what he's talking about is, is the creation account. Verse 8, for man is not from woman, but woman from man. Now, where do we learn that? We learned that in Genesis 1 to 3, right? We learned that when God took the dirt, fashioned it into the shape of a man, breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living soul. And God said, it's too quiet, so I'm going to take a rib from his side, and I'm going to create a woman. No, 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 no. I'm having fun. I'm going to be in big trouble, aren't I? He created from his side woman. Actually, one preacher said, God created her. He said, I could do better than this, and he made woman. And in my estimation, that's true. Um, but he created everybody from Adam. Adam was the one who was stamped, and consequently Eve was stamped with the image of God. If you'll notice again, look at it, verses 8 and 9. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. 
And ladies, don't, get, don't, don't blow a gasket here. He looked at Adam and said, he's alone. He needs a help meet. He needs somebody that's suitable to him. And God caused Adam to go into a deep sleep. Talk about the first surgery. Here it is. Caused him to go into a deep sleep, took a rib from his side, fashioned a woman, and brought her to Adam. And the two of them were joined in marriage, and they became one in that relationship. Where do we learn that? We learn that in Genesis 1 to 3. Is Genesis 1 to 3 history, or is it some kind of fantasy? Is it something that we believe for what it says, or is it something that we have to reinterpret to make it say something else? Well, if you're just looking at Adam, that's all I'm looking at tonight, you recognize that God realizes and recognizes and reminds us that, that everything about the Genesis account is true. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Just a few more pages over, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And look at verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Notice what it says. These, these are, again, you're marking the creation passages. I'm giving you just the ones related to Adam and Eve. But notice, but I fear, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve. Now, wait a minute. How would they know that? If they didn't know the Genesis account? Lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. In other words, he's talking to people in Corinth who were letting false teachers come and who were denying the faith in what they were teaching. And he says, you're being deceived. And who was the first person who was deceived? It was Eve. That doesn't mean that women are more gullible than men. It just means that she was the first person who was deceived. And Adam submitted his will to, to Eve, and consequently mankind was plunged uh, under the curse of sin. But I want you to notice in chapter 11, verse 3, this verse assumes the reader's awareness of Genesis and it speaks of it as being a historical account. Uh, look with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to blow you out of the water here. Please, just let the Bible say what it says. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Notice with me. I've got to finish up here pretty quickly. I've got 10 minutes. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, Paul is talking about conduct in the church. He's giving uh, Timothy instruction about how to you know, have the church run in, a, in an orderly fashion. Verse 11, he says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first. There's your creation account. Was Adam formed first in the creation account? Yes. Then Eve. And Adam was not deceived. Who was the one who was deceived? Eve was. But the woman, that doesn't mean she's more gullible than the man, just means that she was the first to be deceived. Being deceived fell into transgression. Do you see it? He goes on, verse, uh, uh, what verse am I in? Uh, 15, nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness with self-control. So you understand what he's doing? He's taking them back to creation. He's saying these are historical characters. These are people that were alive. This is the way God did it. By the way, when you reinterpret Genesis 1 to 3, you have to reinterpret 1 Timothy chapter 2, 11 to 14 to allow for female pastors, female bishops, and uh, female elders, which, by the way, are all three the same thing. Why? Because the order in the church was set up that way and attached to creation. Not before the sin, not after the sin, but before the sin. That was the order of God. That's the way he set it up. Your problem isn't with me. Your problem's with the text. 
Paul here acknowledges the historicity of Adam and Eve. He speaks of the sequence in which they were formed. He uses the innocence and deception of Eve to make his point historically. Look with me at Jude, Jude verse 14. Jude chapter 14. Anybody find Jude 14, chapter 14? If you found Jude chapter 14, you got a different Bible. Listen to what he says, verse 14. Now Enoch, was Enoch a real person? Did Enoch actually live? How many generations was he from Adam? It says he was the seventh generation from, from, from Adam. Think about this for a moment. You remember Enoch? He was the man that walked with God and, what's the next phrase? Was not. Why? For God took him. Can you imagine just one day you're walking in fellowship with the Lord and God just says, come on home. And you just walk right on into heaven. God took him into his very presence. But listen to verse 14. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam. Where do we learn about Adam? Where do we learn about Enoch? prophesied about these men also saying behold the lamb comes with ten thousands of his saints again Enoch is treated as a historical person Adam is treated as a historical person Judah understood Adam that way and he uses him that way if Genesis 1 to 3 aren't accurate if we got to reinterpret the number of days we got to reinterpret our understanding of mankind itself that creates a problem we don't have time to go through all of these. Write them down if you want to. Matthew 19, 4 to 6. In Matthew 19, 4 to 6, you know what Jesus ties marriage to? Creation. He takes them all the way back. This is the way it was. Do you know the phrase? In the beginning. Not after millions and billions of years. This is the way it was. What's the phrase? In the beginning. Why? Because the creation account is a historical, actual account. I do want you to look with me at Romans, Romans chapter 8. And then I got one more after that and we're done. All I'm trying to show you is if you choose not to believe in creation, you choose to adopt another theory that allows the millions and billions of years to exist, and you got to reinterpret all of Genesis. you got to reinterpret what you're going to do with Adam and Eve. And in the process of doing that, now you've got to go through all of your Bible. You've got to look at every creation text. And you've got to figure out how you're going to reinterpret every other text. Hey, folks, the evidence is the same for all of us. Your presuppositions color how you approach that evidence. If you come at it from a inspiration of scripture perspective you come away understanding the evidence differently than those who believe there is no god or who try to fit evolution into the opening chapters that god gives us look at romans chapter 8 verse 18 here's a creation text he says for i consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Thank God for that. Because there's plenty of sufferings right now, right? For the earnest expectation of the, what? Creation. Creation. Eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the, what? Creation was subjected to futility. Let me ask you a question. How was creation subjected to futility? Was it because millions and billions, time and chance worked its way out and man was subjected all that time over through all of that experience? No, 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 no. How, why is the world we live in in a mess? Because of the fall of Adam. He goes on, verse, uh, back to verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. Here it is, the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole, get it again, creation groans and travails with birth pangs together until now. And everybody can say, Amen. Walking down the hallway to the hospital, 
today with my legs and feet like there are, I thought to myself, I, told, I texted Mary, I said, I don't, I don't want to live like this the rest of my life. I just about fell on my face. Drugged my feet just enough. If you ever, I guess if you're going to fall on your face, that's a good place to be if you're going to fall on your face. We live in these bodies that are sub- subject to the corruption of sin. Why is there the... the, the, the uh, the, the, the destruction that's all around us because of sin. I want to take you to one last one, and that's Romans chapter 5. What, what are you going to do, not with just Genesis 1 to 3, what are you going to do with the rest of your Bible? I told you I'm a pastoral theologian. What, what are you going to do with the rest of your Bible if you have to reinterpret Genesis 1 to 3 to accommodate a theory that cannot be replicated, could not and cannot be observed? What are you going to do with the rest of your Bible? You're going to have to reinterpret a whole bunch of verses to figure out what they mean, starting with Adam himself. Notice in chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, here we go, who is the one man? Didn't say there was anybody before Adam. We know that Jesus' genealogy traces everybody back to one man. And before that, it says he's the son of God. It's God who created him, who made him what he is, stamped him with his image. Verse verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, how did the corruption come? It came through Adam. And death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. So let me ask you a question. All of the fossils and all the things that they say are the product of millions and billions of years. By the way, those are true. Those are actual. They, they exist. The evidence is the same for all of us. They all exist. The, the question is, how'd they get there? The creationists have a different answer than the evolutionist. The creationist says that they are there because of the worldwide flood. The evolutionist says... They they are there because there was millions and billions of years and there were moments when life was hard and there was death. Only the fittest survived. Do you hear what Romans chapter 5 says? The corruption of creation came through one man and through that Disobedience of that one man, the corruption that came on mankind brought what? Death. Death didn't exist before Adam, as the evolutionists tell us. He goes on, verse 14. Well, look at verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from... Wait a minute, does, does death reign before Adam? Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness. In other words, the law of Moses hadn't been given yet, and yet they were still responsible to God. They were still sinful. According to the likeness of the transgressions of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come for the free gift, but the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation by the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense, how many? One man. Who's the one man? Adam. And we're paralleling Adam with Jesus here. Adam brought death. Who's going to bring life? Let's see what he says here. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, 
The free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered in the offense that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Thank God. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see what he's doing? Adam is the type of the one that was coming, Jesus. One brings death, the other brings life. He's presented as a historical person, which is the reason I've taken you through all of these texts. He's presented as a historical person, the person who comes out of Genesis 1 to 3, and he explains why the world is in the mess we are in isn't because of millions and billions of years. It is because of the entrance of sin through the disobedience of Adam. All I'm saying is this. I said it took you a long time to say this, preacher. I know. I realize that. All I'm saying is this. I don't think any of you are evolutionists. I mean, secular evolutionists. I don't think anybody thinks that way, at least that I'm, that I'm aware of. But if you're going to reinterpret Genesis to accommodate the secular perspective of evolution, which doesn't believe in a God anyway, if you're, if you're going to reinterpret Scripture to accommodate that evidence, then you've got a bigger problem to deal with when, than just the first three chapters of Genesis 1 to 3. You've got a Bible full of Scriptures that refer back to the creation account and to the creation of Adam and Eve from his side the roles of men and women in society, marriage, bringing them together, everything gets tied back into creation. Now you've got to reinterpret your entire Bible because now you've got a problem. Now you've got to go back and say, well, maybe 1 Timothy chapter 2 about the roles of men and women in the church. Ah, you know, maybe we need to rethink that. You get what I'm getting at? You follow what I'm saying? You say, are you a scientist? I'm, I'm not a scientist. You put a test tube up here, I'll just drop it and break it. I got no idea what you do with it. I, I'm a theologian. I'm just telling you, I believe what God said. Amen. The only one who was there to see what happened. By the way, I don't believe you have to check your brains. There are creation scientists who will affirm scientifically what I'm telling you, that the evidence can prove creation. if you come at it from a perspective of the inspiration of Scripture and that God created everything, the evidence will prove the creation of God exactly like God said it. But if you decide to reinterpret Genesis 1 to 3, you've got a whole Bible you're going to have to go back and figure out, make it say something other than what it says. I just choose to believe. I'm, maybe I'm simple. I just choose to believe what God says. I wish, that we, I wish we would teach our children. We do in the church. I wish, I wish every parent would teach his or her children the creation story. T take them up to the creation museum. Take them to the ark. Get them involved in creation science. Educate yourself about another perspective, scientific perspective, to look at the evidence from a creation point of view. Don't just buy what we're being sold about the evolutionary theory.